Good to see you in the chapel this morning. Today's scripture is from Luke's gospel, gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 9 and the following. Luke 18, 9. Luke 18, 9 and the following. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What is your favorite scripture verse? Or, broadening the scope, what is your favorite biblical book? We tend to ask such questions. Sometimes, however, we ask an additional question. What is your favorite parable in the New Testament? When we ask such a question, there is a presumption, there is an assumption in view. That is, a parable is supposed to be a sweet and tender entity. That's why we are asking about favorite parable. However, in the context of Jesus' public ministry around AD 30, situation was notably different. Jesus often intended his parables to pose a strong challenge to the audience and even a counterpunch, counterattack to his opponents. One of the greatest examples would be the parable of the tenants. Following Jesus' demonstration in the temple, religious authorities or temple authorities come to him, challenging him, questioning his authority. They say, With what authority have you done that? Who has given you that authority? Jesus does not answer directly, but shortly after, Jesus is giving this parable, parable of the tenants. As soon as the parable is over, this was the response from the targeted audience. Then they looked for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So this parable was extremely tender and sweet to them. In light of this reality, as we find in the Gospels, probably we need to upgrade our question from what is your favorite parable to what is the most provocative parable to you? Today's parable in Luke 18, 9 and the following also comes with some challenge. 
it is putting some stress and burden on the part of the original hearers within the setting of Jesus' public ministry. Verse 9 clearly states this, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. This parable was for a specifically targeted group of people that are likely hostile to Jesus and his teaching and his ministry in general. Namely, those who are confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, likely Jesus included. The Galilean prophet, the Galilean rabbi. This parable begins by describing two men going up from the lower part of Jerusalem to the mount where the temple stood. One is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. What a vivid contrast. As you know, Pharisees were among the most pious and well-respected people within first century Judaism. On the other hand, tax collectors were among the most despised. They were often categorized and labeled as traitors to their people, the people of Israel, the people of God, to the covenantal community of God. Pharisees would not eat or have fellowship with tax collectors. Guilt by association is the term to be applied if you try to have fellowship with tax collectors in the setting of first century Judaism. Pharisees are probably comparable to most dedicated seminarians in the chapel or most dedicated Spurgeon College students or most dedicated Southern Baptist Sunday school teachers and deacons. On the other hand, tax collectors are comparable to people like drug dealers in the eyes of first century Jews. That is the setting for this parable. With such a vivid contrast in view, I want to reflect on what true righteousness is and is not based upon today's text. Firstly, it should be noted that self-righteousness is not true righteousness. Once again, self-righteousness is not true righteousness. Some scholars have suggested that the Pharisees' prayer in this parable was just, that was just a normal Jewish prayer. One should expect such a prayer from typical first century Jews. But here in this specific context, the prayer of the Pharisee in the parable is filled with self-righteousness elements. I'm going to point out four things from the text that we need to give attention. Number one, we need to look at, once again, how the parable is introduced. Verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Obviously, within the parable itself, the Pharisee represents this self-righteous and prideful people. And we must interpret the Pharisee's prayer in light of how the parable itself was introduced in verse 9. Number two, let's look at 
his prayer in verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Although the Pharisee starts his prayer with, God, I thank you. The actual content of his prayer is highly self-righteous and self-confident, as revealed from the repeated use of first-person singular language. I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. God, I thank you, is like a cliche here. The specific content of the Pharisee's prayer is mainly bragging about himself. While giving thanks to God verbally, he is taking all the credit himself. Number three, element number three from the text. Verse 14, the concluding verse clarifies this point even further. Jesus declares in the concluding verse of verse 14, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Such a conclusion reveals that the Pharisee's prayer was mainly a business of self-promotion and self-elevation. Verse 14 clearly states that it is not the Pharisee, but rather the tax collector who has been justified. Self-righteousness does not work according to this parable, according to today's text. The concluding statement in verse 14, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, indicates clearly that God has rejected the Pharisees' self-righteous and prideful prayer. Number four, now let's look at the context. Looking at the literary context of today's passage, uh, that will be helpful in terms of reinforcing what has been just noted. Today's text is a part of Luke 18, 9 through 30, which contains three passages. That is today's passage and uh, the passage about little children brought to Jesus. And finally, the story of a young, rich man, rich young man known as Young rich ruler, rich young ruler. These three passages together promote pure trust in God while rejecting self-trust. Especially the two following passages immediately after today's text show further that self-righteousness cannot be true righteousness. Secondly, Comparative righteousness is not true righteousness. Comparative righteousness is not true righteousness. Practicing self-righteousness and despising others are often twins, just as noted in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. On the other hand, humility toward God and humility toward the neighbors. They are often coupled with each other, as you can see from some heroes of faith 
in your life. And even some of the people in this space, uh, rather many of the people that are here. The basis of the Pharisees' sense of or perception of righteousness is his comparison with others. Thus, he prays, I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Here, only this last reference to the tax collector is singular. The Pharisee singles out the tax collector who was praying in the same space because that tax collector provides a tangible sign of the Pharisee's own comparative righteousness. If he really wants to compare himself with someone, he should rather compare himself with God. Then he will realize how sinful he is, how glorious God is, and how much of God's mercy he needs. Yet, this Pharisee has taken a totally different direction of comparison, contrasting himself rather with the tax collector, thus establishing his own sense of superiority and comparative righteousness. Today's passage, however, ends with the justification of the tax collector, not the justification of the Pharisee. And that simply reveals the Pharisee's comparative righteousness scheme does not work at all. True righteousness comes from God and God alone. Comparative righteousness is not true righteousness. Thirdly, works-oriented righteousness is not true righteousness. Works-oriented righteousness is not true righteousness. Pharisees were apparently doing some great and impressive and remarkable things in first century Jewish setting. It is important to note that fasting twice a week and tithing comprehensively according to the Pharisaic codes are not unethical by any means. Again, they were indeed doing great things. Many devout Jews fasted for two full days a week, Mondays and Thursdays, without water. Pharisees were strict and meticulous about tithing, giving over 20% of their income. They tithed main crops, livestock, garden herbs, and even what they bought in case the seller didn't tithe on it. They were very meticulous, very strict, very much committed. Such fasting and tithing practices were routines on the part of the Pharisees. Those practices were, in other words, their lifestyle, displaying their super impressive commitment and dedication. If today, right now, if I have to say that you cannot participate in this chapel any longer unless you fast two full days each week without water and give um, over 20% of your income to your church. Perhaps everyone in this chapel needs to live immediately, including myself. But the concluding verse of today's text in verse 14 is crystal clear that it is not the Pharisee but the tax collector that has been justified. This shows that one's pious works, no matter how impressive and remarkable they might be, 
cannot justify the person. The Pharisee was obviously practicing something remarkable, but that does not guarantee that he has right standing with God. Works-oriented righteousness is not true righteousness. If self-righteousness, comparative righteousness, or works-oriented righteousness was true righteousness, the Pharisee should be declared justified toward the end of today's text. But at the conclusion of today's passage, it is not that Pharisee, but rather the tax collector who is justified. We are not shocked by the conclusion to our passage simply because we are too familiar with it. However, Jesus' original hearers during his public ministry around AD 30 would have been shocked by such a conclusion. They may have even complained to Jesus, challenged him, and even accused him for condoning unethical, drug dealer-like behaviors of tax collectors with such a shocking and unacceptable conclusion. I tell you that this tax collector, rather than that Pharisee, went home justified. Verse 14. In their eyes, in the eyes of Jesus' original hearers, especially targeted audience, such a conclusion is certainly unfair and even provocative. However, we need to remember this. God's kingdom often reverses and even frustrates human expectations. And this is not the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus introduces the principle of reversal. Earlier in 1330, Jesus declared, there are those who are last who will be first, and first, who will be last. Jesus actually announced in 1411 something basically identical to our conclusion in today's text. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The rich man and Lazarus passage in Luke chapter 16 too presents a great reversal of expectation and, of course, the greatest of all reversers is Jesus' own resurrection in Luke chapter 24. This leads to the next point. Fourthly and most importantly, hold on to the God-given righteousness, which alone is true righteousness. Once again, hold on to the God-given righteousness, which alone is true righteousness. Verse 14 states, the tax collector has been justified. And that means his request has been answered and he has been forgiven. Here, the passive participle justified in Greek is something technically called divine passive or theological passive. That is, a passive construction with the divine agency in view. So the idea is justified by God although by God is not expressed. Here, identifying this divine passive construction reinforces that God and not anyone else is the agent of the justifying act. True righteousness comes from God. Thus, only God-given righteousness is true righteousness. And this true righteousness is 
granted to those who humble themselves and depend only upon God's mercy. God justifies those who humbly acknowledge their sins and cry out for his mercy, for his forgiveness. I have just stated, true righteousness is granted only to those who humble themselves and depend exclusively upon God's mercy, as well illustrated by today's passage. Genuine humility and dependence upon God as such are well exemplified by the tax collector in today's parable. The Pharisee assumed that he was totally different from other people. Thus, he viewed others as sinners, but not himself. In contrast, tax collector confesses his sinfulness, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as the scripture repeatedly teaches us, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The tax collector's request for God's mercy with humility is evident from the text. Literally, the tax collector prays, this is his prayer in a literal Greek sense, God, be propitiated to me, a sinner. So this tax collector was praying that his sacrifice of atonement in the temple be the basis for God's forgiveness. The tax collector stands at a distance because he did not feel worthy to go nearer to the sanctuary. He was not willing even to raise his eyes to heaven because he felt unworthy to look up to the holy God. He kept on striking his chest, which signifies his repentance, contrition, and genuine sorrow. The action of beating his own chest probably reflects an acknowledgement that his heart is the seat of sin. Repentance and humility accompany each other in the tax collector's prayer. Look at the brevity of his prayer that contains only six words in Greek and uh, make a comparison uh, between that and 29-word prayer by the Pharisee. The tax collector had a hard time even finishing his single-sentence prayer. And the Pharisee, on the other hand, was much more eloquent with the greater rhetoric in his prayer. The Pharisee's prayer is approximately five times longer according to the final form text that we have in Luke's Gospel. Yet, Jesus declares in verse 14, it is not the Pharisee, but the tax collector that has been justified by God. Word count does not matter in this case. True humility and genuine dependence upon God do. Our rhetoric becomes simply meaningless when right heart posture is absent. Indeed, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Although today's passage 
does not explicitly state Jesus' atonement, Christ's atoning death. We cannot help but connect this passage to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah on the cross. Shortly after today's passage, we find the third and the last passion prediction, 1831 and the following. Moreover, the climax of Luke's narrative, the climactic point of Luke's gospel is nothing but the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the meaning of which is explained as my blood, which is poured out for you. Luke 22, 20. Furthermore, Luke's gospel is a story about Jesus, borrowing the term coined by the late New Testament scholar Lady Hurtado, Luke's gospel is a Jesus book. Then, it is simply insufficient to stop here. Rather, we need to make a connection to the identity and ministry of Jesus, and especially his substitutionary atonement on the cross. Thus, we can conclude, those who humbly rely on God's mercy are the very ones trusting what Christ has done on the cross, which is the climactic revelation of divine mercy. At the beginning of today's sermon, I mentioned that parables were often used by Jesus to challenge his original hearers. This parable, and especially how it concludes, still places an unavoidable challenge to those who pursue self-righteousness, comparative righteousness, or works-oriented righteousness. However, to those who humble themselves and trust God's mercy alone for their righteousness, the mercy that is revealed climactically at the cross, this parable is the sweetest one that shows the very heart of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, it is so easy to be distracted from the most important thing, the most fundamental thing, the very thing that has brought you here to the seminary campus, the campus of Spurgeon College, in the midst of assignments, tasks, due dates, and to-do lists, etc., etc. I'm talking about the gospel in which a righteousness from God is revealed. That is the gospel of the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus. Let us hold on to the God-given righteousness. Let us hold on to the mercy of God revealed climactically at the cross. Let us not boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to us and we to the world. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we behold your mercy. We behold our crucified Messiah. And we behold the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.